0: Vinepair is excited to partner with Mount Gay Rum for its A Taste of Home cocktail competition. Inspired by Mount Gay's centuries-long relationship with Barbados, the competition asks bartenders to craft a cocktail that represents what home means to them using sustainable local ingredients. Six finalists will earn the incredible opportunity to visit Barbados and compete for the national title. Head to the link in today's show description for all the rules and guidelines, and be sure to submit your recipe by midnight on Wednesday, March 29th. Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Old school New York in the house today as we pay a visit to the Bronx with a Manhattan detour and considerable input from Brooklyn. The Bronx is the cocktail. Manhattan comes into play via the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Two of them, actually. And our wonderful guest is Brooklyn native Frank Caiapha. In Frank's words, the Bronx is notable for many reasons, actually. But among them, the fact that it's one of the pre-Prohibition classics that never enjoyed a modern resurgence. Is that because this drink suffers some kind of identity crisis? Or are there other factors at play? More on that shortly, listener, as well as cameos from cool cats such as Johnny Salon and The Thin Man. Frank's own professional background is closely tied to the storied hotel mentioned at the top there, having worked as the beverage director of the celebrated Peacock Alley and Lachine restaurants at the Waldorf Astoria from 2005 until its closure for renovations in 2017. Frank also runs the beverage and hospitality consulting enterprise Handlebars NYC and is the author of the Waldorf Astoria bar book, which published just before the hotel's closure. So what about that Bronx listener? Are you ready for the rivers of gin and juice to flow freely at lunchtime? What about this week's music? I'm glad you ask. That is an original taping from the Waldorf Astoria Dance Orchestra, recorded at the hotel sometime between 1917 and 1918, and given a modern-day twist by none other than our producer, Darby Seaside. It's the Cocktail College podcast listener, but of course it is. There ain't no one else out there in the game coming up with this kind of content. You can keep your peshies and your De Niro's, because for today's Bronx Tale, we got one of the best in the business. Genuine New Yorker here today as well, Frank Kayafa. Thanks for joining us. Hello. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. And I'm right in saying that, right? Genuine genuine New Yorker here in the here Born in the and studio today. In,
1: uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn.
0: So you, you you're feeling okay for us to to make a detour into a different borough today? Sure. No 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 beef there. No,
1: and I'm not a Yankee fan either. <laughs>
0: What about um, just the Bronx, right? So most iconic cocktail from a New York borough, of course, is going to be the Manhattan, right? Right. But what about the Bronx? How do you feel about this drink? I'm hoping you like it. That's why we're here today.
1: I do like it, and I like it in many various iterations as well. I think it's pretty pliable. Mm -hmm. I think it can go from anywhere to a stirred, augmented, perfect martini to a full-blown brunch type on the rocks, royaled, yeah you know kind of afternoon quaff as well and everywhere in between and if you look at most recipes through time they did hit almost every variation in between with uh um, augments of absinthe and egg whites all the way down you know
0: nice so not not like that Manhattan mold there where you have one where okay you can tweak the ratios and maybe add a little bit of this or that but the formula there has remained pretty much the same throughout time right
1: right. Well, actually, an exact opposite because of Manhattan is meant to be augmented, Like right? Through time, it's been augmented and different names have come out of it. Brooklyn or cabalil and all these other yeah. variations. Been in, yeah, right, like Greenpoint, spins and riffs, yeah. Right. But uh, the funny thing about the Bronx is that mostly, except the ones with Champagne and Absinthe, they've been just variations on the same Few ingredients. Mm -hmm. What are those
0: ingredients for those who might not be familiar?
1: Typically, it's London dry gin, sweet and dry vermouth, and uh, orange juice. Mm -hmm.
0: And we'll get into this in the ingredients section, but when you say sweet and dry there, we're talking like a a sweet red vermouth or a a Bianco? A sweet red. Yes. Nice. Sorry, I should have clarified. No, no, no. I think of anything that I think it was implied, but, you know, just myself there. This is a drink that's steeped in history as have been many of the places you worked in throughout your career, too. Let's start with the drinks history, though. Um, can you tell us about that and then maybe weave in your own journey along the way there, if that makes sense sure. for us to do so?
1: Well, this certainly goes back to the turn of the last century, uh, the 1800s into the 1900s. Uh, the first time it's in print is uh, 1901, um, with uh, attributing John Curley O'Connor the bartender from the uh, Waldorf on Fifth Avenue um, as the creator. Uh, His version, uh, that particular version, they don't list, so you don't know, but I'm going to assume it's somewhat similar to the one in Jock Straub's drinks, which is based on, uh, he had a good uh, viewing and uh, borrowed the old hotel book from Oscar Cherky, Oscar Mm -hmm. of the Waldorf. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that one, it's a uh, perfect martini shaken with uh peels of orange
0: shaken right, and the peels of orange again, some people these days uh maybe want to call that what is that the royal shake? I don't know, I don't know uh, yeah, yeah. To get into that, but but', uh, but, but the, the peels in peel. the tin, right the peel. Nice. And were they were they too? Do we know anything? Were they too fussed about the whole shaken versus stirred argument? No, back but then, I would or? argue
1: that when it first shows up in print in uh, William Booth uh, Cocktail Boothby's book, mm-hmm. uh, 1908, uh, from 1908, uh, World Drinks and How to Mix Them, um, he just says serve cold. So his is with an actual augmented boss spoon of orange juice, which I tend to like to think whether I'm wrong or not remains to be seen. But I like to think since it's the only one, beside the El Floridita one, which specifies being stirred, it's the only one that you can get away with stirring officially since it doesn't say either way. Yeah. But the rest of them all
0: direct the drink to be shaken. And that's because of that, that citrus component there, right. the orange juice. I yeah. would think so, yes. Mm-hmm. And how much does that, Pulling aside from history for a second, how much does that really change the profile of this? Because, you know, you list the first couple of ingredients, and like you said, it's like a perfect martini, but then you introduce this this orange juice, like, profile-wise, is that really, does that shake things up, excuse the pun? It does. Um, I
1: Like, to me, a stirred version with a small augment of peel and or a bar spoon of juice is a great way to go as more of a martini pre-dinner. Um, cocktail, cocktail stiffer cocktail. Um, The uh, shaken one with a full ounce of orange juice, if you may, with uh, full doses of vermouths and gin, shaken, it's more in the line of a uh, pleasing afternoon cocktail, I Mm -hmm. would think. Well, a crowd pleaser along the lines of, as uh, I think David Wondrich called it, the Cosmo of its time.
0: Yeah, Right. (laughs) absolutely, yeah. It's interesting that you you start to do those classic gin cocktail roundups in your head or whatnot. Maybe this is just a a failing of myself, but the Bronx, again, it really is not one of the first ones that comes to mind. It's often an afterthought, if if even a thought. Right. It's also
1: not looked upon fondly by the modern-day bartender or drinker, right? Mm -hmm. It's probably the only major cocktail as popular that never had a heyday post its main heyday. Like the aviation, which is not looked upon kindly right now, Nuh-uh. again, at least that had a resurgence, mm-hmm. right? At the beginning of uh, the arts mm-hmm. when people started finding maraschino liqueur and all the old ingredients Villa, came back, right?
0: Came bring that back yes. in, those guys. What about, why do you think that is? Well, the orange juice is
1: definitely a uh, dividing ingredient, you know, to have it, you have to Prepare it a la minute. So you have to be prepared to prepare it a minute and then to do it for a full bar, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a challenge, I guess, for some busier bars. And then uh, deciding on what it is you want to serve. Do you want to uh, serve something juicier and wine? And then if you go that way, I think there's better cocktails mm-hmm. to get that point across.
0: Yeah. and And maybe you argue that, Maybe you could argue that a lot of this, you know, rediscovering drinks and a lot of cocktail making over the past 25 years has been this real kind of pursuit of balance. Right. And for that, we usually turn to what? Citrus like lemon and lime for the acidity where the the orange doesn't quite have that. I don't know. It's weird. It feels like... And, I, I, and I'm not trying to shit on the Bronx here, right? But it, it does feel like a drink with a bit of an identity crisis, right? Kind of resembles a martini, but then we're shaking it. It's got the citrus, but maybe no sweetness to it as well. You're only getting the sweetness from the vermouth. So it's kind of all over the place and right. never altogether.
1: I think at Flibert's time, I'll say this, it was innovative, right? It used juice, probably the first one that became popular using juice. Uh, it incorporated... Fairly new items like vermouth mm-hmm. into the mix. Probably the first London dry gin, not really focusing on Geneva at the turn of the last century. So there were a lot of new things in it that lent itself to popularity. Also, you have to realize the back bars of the day didn't have that much, as much as we have today. Right. So they worked with what they had.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're pulling from fewer ingredients and then what happens after that too. It's like, well, if I'm having a, a gin and vermouth drink, chances are I'm probably going for the martini first. Right. Um, I pulled you off on a little tangent there while we were doing our historical deep dive. Um, is, are there any other kind of moments that we want sure. to highlight here? So yeah, The most
1: famous one, the most famous origin story is, of course, the Johnny Salon bartender at the old Waldorf that... Uh, Albert Stevens Crockett wrote in Old Waldorf Bodies. Can I can I interrupt Are you here for a sure. second
0: there as well? So, for any folks maybe not familiar, there's an old Waldorf and there's a new Waldorf. I mean, I, I know people will be like Waldorf Astoria, their mind immediately goes to New York and kind of right. like classic New York. But
1: well, well, I guess we're into Mach 3 now. So, so we're into uh, Mach. Th- okay. So, you have the original hotel that was on Fifth Avenue. Where the Empire State Building stands today. Okay. And then just out the window right. there near us. And current um, location is Park and 50th, takes the entire block, and it's been there since uh, 1931. Okay. So, three, 1933. So, and then it's been closed for renovation since 2017. And when it reopens, it'll definitely be Mach 3. It's not going to be a renovated old yeah.
0: version of the second hotel. Wow. So it's the same location, but it's going to be completely, right. completely re More or less. There's
1: a few landmark mm-hmm. uh, locations within the building, but by and large, it'll be brand new.
0: Nice. And so then it's Mark II where we, right. where we, where we have the, this origin story. My book
1: represents, uh, like Albert Stevens Crockett, he wrote a book for a hotel that didn't exist uh, anymore during Prohibition. He wrote his homage, to oh, Waldorf Bardet's, about the first hotel, I wrote m- my version of the Wall of Astoria Bar book. But I really didn't know when I started it, of course, that I would be doing the same type of service to the hotel that he did. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that right after my ho- my book was released, a year later, the hotel closed. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah,
0: Well, it is what it is. It is what it is. And, and so that origin story you had there in that bar.
1: Uh, in that bar. So uh, Johnny Salon, the bartender... Of the day was uh, apparently making duplexes, which were uh, simple drinks, wine-based drinks, half-sweetened uh, dry vermouth. And the lunchtime bartender challenged him to make a new drink, and he did so by adding gin and juice to the duplex, mm-hmm. apparently shaking it up, and it became the hottest new thing. He went from less than a case of oranges a day to over three or four cases a day. Wow. So I often say that, uh, being around at the time that rivers of gin and juice were flowing at lunchtime
0: <laughs> must've been, uh, some, some sight. Snoop Dogg would have enjoyed right. it. <laughs> and, uh, Johnny Salon, what a right. bartender name. Yeah. That is.
1: Even a lot of them had, uh, Good names. Curly was that, was that his, you
0: know, quote unquote Christian name or was that more of a, a kind of a moniker he went by? Maybe his name was Johnny, but it's Johnny Salon. Right, Johnny you know. Salon. And- kind, of, kind of makes me think of the old good fellas, you know, Frankie. Was it Frankie yeah. Two Times? Yeah, everyone <laughs> had a
1: nickname.
0: Every one of them had a nickname. I'm going to go get the papers, get the papers. Um, where does the story go from there?
1: Well, by the time the new hotel, that hotel opened... It starts immediately falling out of favor. It was a uh, probably a crowd pleaser during Prohibition as uh, the juice and the vermouths hid flawed uh, gin that was floating around during Prohibition. But uh, it immediately falls out of favor and never reaches its heights again. And that's it? Well, soon after Prohibition, it was in the Thin Man, right, uh, when he... Describe shaking it to the uh, tooth bead or mm-hmm. samba or whatever it is uh, going through it all. But uh, yeah, soon after, that's it. And never to be really reach popularity again.
0: And what about your own career and experience with this drink then? And, and also your own career leading up to to being at the, the Waldorf Astoria. When did you first well, come across this drink? Yeah, how's that all come to Yeah, be?
1: Uh My parents were... Into drinking. So we had a fair amount of uh, bar books and whatnot and things from liquor stores. And even back then, it was still included in like the calendars of, you know, the local liquor store or whatnot because it was so popular in its day. And it's fairly easy to make, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody can do it. So it did hang around. So, I mean, it wasn't made with any, but I was aware. In the classic cocktails of the world, the Bronx, everyone heard of it. Yeah. It wasn't the Rob Roy. Yeah. That's for sure. The Rob Roy is uh, also a cocktail associated with the Waldorf that's probably maintained, you know,
0: a popularity throughout the 20th century. Mm hmm. Somewhat polarizing or not really the Rob Roy? I feel, I don't know. No. No. I'm thinking of the Blood and Sands. Right. There's yeah, there's, a, there's a scotch cocktail and yeah. orange juice as well in that one. Yes. there's a, <laughs> yeah. I still say,
1: though, I worked on a recipe that I uh, placed in my book. And uh, I think if as long as you don't make the blood and sand equal parts, you're fine. If you lean on the scotch, it's okay.
0: Yeah. I've definitely had good versions in my time, but I've also, yeah, I'm aware of that connotation and There being, what, basically two, three scotch cocktails. It's maybe sometimes easy to mix them up. Yeah. And you're, so when did you begin at the the Waldorf then?
1: In 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, Actually, uh, Peacock Alley was closed since uh, 9-11. And uh, so with Fanfare, we reopened in 2005. And I tried to wiggle in as many appropriate Pre-pro cocktails as I could, you know, within reason. Um, I never tried to incorporate the Bronx into the list. Really? Yeah. It was—awareness uh, was the big ingredient missing The uh, from the guests on down. You know, Martinez, no one heard of that. No. In 2005, everything— Anything challenging I placed on the list just for consistency, right? So the whole staff would have uh, a common backstory, a common recipe, yeah, and be able to tell the guests why these drinks are on the list. Mm-hmm. So it was fun. That was the fun part of the job, right? Growing along with everyone's awareness of the cocktail.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We kind of had this conversation recently with uh, another guest, Eric Castro, about ebbs and flows and trends in cocktail culture and, you know, maybe early aughts being this full on speakeasy style or like pre-prohibition classics, right? Rediscovering all of those. Maybe you want to go a little bit further and say stirred boozy drinks, people not taking tiki seriously and then moving into tropical, then experimentation, technology, all this stuff. Keen to here, what do you think, what kind of era are we in at the moment? I mean, I don't see a place these days without a martini on the menu. And it feels like two or three out of every five bars has a martini menu. But what right. do you think we are like in broader terms? Where are we with cocktails at the moment? What's What's going on? I think it's very dependent
1: on the operation and the concept of the operation you can have a lot of fun i think it's more varied than ever Mm -hmm. i think you can be as tight to the classics as you want uh innovative as you want i could give examples of each you could be as fun as you want each week there's a new fun place i think that's important bringing fun and keeping fun and going out it all can't be
0: pre-pro exactly right stirred boozy because it's, you know, it's like the old adage about, you know, why you invest in property. You know, they ain't making any more land. They ain't making any more pre-prohibition cocktails, right? right. They've all happened. they've all yes. It's impossible. But so. I,
1: to be fair, when, let's say when I started at Peacock Alley in 05, um, that's when everyone was delving into these old books. And soon you just simply run out of material. So everyone ran out of material at about the same time. That's when the 70s and uh, Tiki and all yeah. of that started picking back up because you had to fill the next hole, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating how it happens. And I guess my the, the other part of that question there was, is now the Bronx time? I don't know. Uh, it can <laughs> be.
1: I think people just have to be a little more adventurous and open-minded about it. Yeah, I think you can make variations that are very good. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I make a... In in the old books they call a version with extra juice a jazz, and if you put that on the rocks, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. So you make a classic Bronx build, add another ounce of juice. You could probably build the whole thing in the glass, and everyone's happy. Mm -hmm. You put a touch of champagne on top of that, and it's even better.
0: Yeah, there we go. Yeah, just you know, the subtle maybe one or two other things come into it, and yeah. Also,
1: I think a version with the Dash of absinthe really lends it the spine yeah. that it needs. I think that's the most important ingredient that it's missing when most people make mm-hmm. it. So either by adding a uh, peel, maybe with some pith when you shake it or stir it, or orange bitters, is that somehow you can incorporate a spine into it, it becomes a whole other drink.
0: I think that's it. I think that's where when I was talking earlier about this drink slightly being all over the place. It's like, yeah, you need that. Can't describe it better. The the spine of the drink, and even if it's just a small like the bears, it's not a, right. it's not a large addition, but just adding that maybe it's like the old seasoning of pepper, as they like to describe it. Right. You know, yeah, it
1: does something.
0: It does something. Yeah, and kind of if you're a wine drinker, you might be familiar with, with the term flabby, right? Like these, you know, they're very loose, and you know, it brings it all together. Is that what is that how you would describe a really well executed version of the Bronx as as having spine, like how else would you describe that? Yes. If I had one, that's what
1: I would expect. If I didn't have one, it's certainly a one and done, right? Mm -hmm. If you have one with a spine, whatever it is, however the bartender decides to make that happen. uh, I mean, I've done them even with like drops of um, acid phosphate, you know. Tell uh, us
0: about that. What's that?
1: Adds the citrus note of a lemon and a lime without the flavor.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so kind of like citric and malic acid? right? Or?
1: Yeah, okay. So you hit a couple of dashes of that, and it gives that puckering without tasting uh, mm-hmm. lemon or lime flavor. You can also just simply add a dash of mm-hmm. lemon or lime.
0: Nice. How about we get into the ingredients now, break those sure. down bit by bit, and starting with gin, with the star of the show.
1: I've made it, I mean... Ideally, you have it uh, with—traditionally, you have it with London Dry Gin, but I've made it with Geneva. I've made it with uh, Old Tom. I think Old Tom works well, too. But then you're leaning on uh, looking for more spine, right? Because it's lower in proof. Yeah. It's sweeter. So you're not really helping the cause. No. (laughs) But as a crowd pleaser, if I was serving them at brunch with a little lower alcohol, probably works best, right? Oh, really? In fact, that's how I really see if this was to— become popular again it can be popular as a brunch cocktail
0: that's a good point yeah that that definitely and i certainly feel like that would appeal to a drinker such as myself where i do like my whatever cocktail i'm having to to have a good presence of spirits so with that but you know yeah, and also that takes care of the fresh orange juice problem of You're orange. already juicing them for mimosas, I right. bet. You're just getting through that. And it's lasting ability, right? So you don't have to worry
1: about it lasting six or eight hours from four in the afternoon and becoming flabby at the end. Yeah, You're only serving brunch a couple of hours. You make as much as you need and call it
0: a day. Done. Nice. Question for you about gin in general. You say London dry definitely feels like that. Feel like a good juniper presence too might help with that spine that you spoke about. Right. How interested are you in ABV of gin? And I ask that because when we've had people on the show talking about whiskey cocktails, a lot of the time it's like a non-negotiable. It's like it has to be 50 proof minimum. Uh, 100 proof, sorry. 50% ABV. Do you have a low end for gin when it comes to making cocktails or are you not really concerned? Is it an afterthought?
1: It's dependent on the cocktail. Okay. For sure. Uh a martini, well, everybody knows about beef eat, right? Yeah, lowering its proof. I don't
0: what's think what's your take on that, by the way? Not not necessarily good or bad, say whatever you want, but you know, feel free to. But also, have you noticed the difference yourself
1: in a tasting, in a blind tasting? There's not that much difference, but I have some old bottles at mm-hmm. home, and there's not that much difference. But uh, uh taste wise, profile, no heat. Not in the martini. You wouldn't notice a difference, I would think, realistically. Okay. But uh, as far as uh, proof of ABV and gin, uh, 94 is nice. You know, it gives you some room. Even the 86 is yeah, good. It's depending on what you use it for. I've had some good expressions at 86. Uh, but uh, Navy strength... You know, an ounce of Navy strength in a Bronx would probably take care of everything as well, right? You lower the amount that you put in the drink, but the strength of the gin Mm -hmm. would add its spine, right?
0: I love it. I love that idea. And also, I feel like I'm occasionally looking for uses for my Navy strength gin because, you know, I like a strong martini. I I like a dry martini, but sometimes that that Navy just doesn't quite hit right with it. It's, It's too much or,
1: yeah. Well, they're
0: also drier.
1: Right from whatever it is, then maybe it's the alcohol or yeah. the botanicals they use. So you have to face that. That's why they're good in cocktails yeah. as a layered portion of the whole mix, as, as opposed a- to the star.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which I think in a Bronx, the especially in a Bronx type cocktail, the gin is the star. So you mm-hmm. want to make sure you.
0: And do you have a preference on? Uh, on a London dryer or a navy, you personally, just as a.
1: Only brand wise, i if I had to, I would say Tankeray, only because there's a citrus note already going on. So it kind of meets it halfway. So nothing's really battling. But like you said, having a more juniper forward gin mm-hmm. might, you know, prop it up as mm-hmm. well.
0: Yeah, I feel like a, a Junipero might be a good one right, for yes. this one. Yeah. I was thinking that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a real good one. um Underutilized and what was it as well? I think Phil Ward comes up a lot on this podcast because he's never gonna come in the studio. I was down there recently, Long Island Bar, he was saying very, very good last word gin, Hunipero. Haven't tried it myself. No. Um, but
1: I'm not really a fan of the last word. It's, no uh, one of the classics I didn't even include in uh, <laughs> my book. Why is that?
0: What's what's going on know. there?
1: I don't know. I just never liked it. Every iteration I tried. See, tinkering with it, uh, Mm -hmm. just never liked. uh, There's better uses for chartreuse, green chartreuse, I think. uh,
0: It's funny. Well, this was a topic, again, of uh, of a recent episode, and we were talking about that last word. Don't come at me, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, rationing that green chartreuse these days, and also, but the last word is, it's one of those cocktails, very little margin for error. Right. How about how about the Bronx then on that front? Like, is there a good decent amount or not? Like, if I'm shaking it for five or ten seconds too long, does this thing start to become like way too thin? Or
1: no, I think just the ingredient level makes the most uh, identity. Mm-hmm. Will give it the most identity. I find that lately, the a stirred version with an augmented uh, small amount of fresh orange juice, a martini version is the way I would go. Mm-hmm. I think it props itself up better with bitters, you know. Nice. And orange and as a hint. hmm But, uh, and then there's the fun way. That's what I find interesting, that the popular, fun, shaken blossom yeah. is uh, probably the no-fail. Nice. Right? nice. You can teeter with it all you want, tinker with it all you want for personal taste. Mm-hmm. But like I said, uh, using a Geneva in there brings a whole new element to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, changes that. Let's move on to Vermouth. Um, Off the bat, sweet and dry, are you going same brand, same family, or do you have a preference of each one for each component? No, but what
1: I would say is try to get the most uh, pliable, like not over-the-top renditions of either Vermouth. Mm -hmm. You want, because it's already got a lot of uh, flavor profiles going on and botanicals from the gin. Mm-hmm. You don't want too many botanicals from the vermouth and, right. and overpowering.
0: So you you might dis- some people might describe these as you're talking about maybe a workhorse. Right, Ruth. yes. Which I I think is sometimes taken as a negative connotation, but it doesn't have to be. No,
1: in, in some cocktails, that's what you want, right? You mm. want just a little, whatever they add, but a little of it. You don't mm-hmm. need to swing for the fences every time. <laughs>
0: like, oh boy, yeah. we have a
1: vermouth here.
0: <laughs> and again, any preferences there or for this one, or it's more of an afterthought than the uh, gin.
1: I mean French vermouth. Yeah. Keep it traditional for the dry and Italian vermouth for the sweet. Hey. That would be uh nice. A good place to start. Sharing the
0: love. Yes. <laughs> and Another- it is
1: I I like the Orange bitters—that's up to you, you know. I—I I like a dash in—in in either variation or shaken with a peel. Yeah, you can do that. I mean,
0: will that have some of the same effect there? I mean, obviously, there's not as much going on as an orange bitters, but I if think you don't this have is a it, fun
1: drink for the audience to like find these things out. Yeah, and, you know, we can put up different recipes up on the site. Yeah, and. uh. They can tinker with it as well and see, because so much is personal taste, you know, and part of the experience that I learned from uh, writing recipes for not only a bar, but then for a larger audience for a book, right? You want to play the middle or you get caught playing the middle more times than you want. Yeah. But I think the middle is a good place to start when you're trying to reach the most people.
0: And I think you're you're doing such a great job today of also talking about, like, here's where you can go with this, and here's where that's going to take you to, right? If you're doing the stirred version versus the shaken, and this is what the beer is going right. to bring. Like, yeah, start with it. Start with maybe a classic version or not. There's but. also an
1: old caprahinia type, you know, where you muddle the uh, orange peel
0: like in a caprahinia. You can't see this listener, but my eyebrows are just raising here. I'm <laughs> that, like, okay, tell me about this Kuiperina style. It's the broth. same.
1: Only you start with muddling the peel of the orange, building it, you know, adding the ingredients, shaking that, and then you have a new cocktail. But I,
0: I gotta try that. I l- I like the sound of that. That's that's yeah. fun.
1: Orange Julius,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you're and and just orange juice. I mean, we we've covered it a few times, you know, over this episode, but. You're juicing it fresh.
1: Fresh is the way to go. I mean, You're n- without a doubt.
0: But you would, but for lemon and lime, you would uh, prep a bit beforehand, or are you going fresh, fresh with everything? If it was a
1: menu item, if it was a, on a brunch menu, yeah. I would uh, batch in advance for sure, a quarter yeah. or two. I mean, you only need an ounce yeah. at the most in most renditions. So, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a quart of orange juice will mm-hmm. go a long way.
0: And... At, I asked that as well because there are certain schools of thought, of course, you know, we're all familiar with fresh is best versus right package, right? right? Uh, But then there do become certain schools of thought of where's the peak for lemon or lime juice and how long does it last? And I think we spoke about this off-air actually where I was like, part of what I love about having these conversations is it's getting to see each bartender's approach the things too because there's only so much you can rely on science for and other things are just like preference or maybe pseudoscience that you, you believe in when right. it comes to things like this. So what's your take there?
1: Well, lemon, lime, any fresh fruit is dependent on seasonality, Yeah, right? Right off the bat. So right there, it's, you know, every few weeks you should be tasting along and seeing what it is. But uh, I guess lemon and lime is are more pervious to time. They just last, right, for the day. You could uh, squeeze fresh juice at Uh 9 in the morning and do it again at 3 in the afternoon, and you're good. You know, there's no decision. People argue that lime juice at the end of the shift tastes better than at the beginning. There's all of that. I say it's very dependent on what you use it for, right? So if you're making a fresh daiquiri and you're simply adding sugar and rum, that would probably make an impact. Right. Yeah, but if you're making a last word, you're probably not going to notice. No, the no, no.
0: Well, not when it's competing with it, you know all those other ingredients. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, all right. How about we ask you to commit to one recipe for for this recording? At okay. least we can share some others. But sure, you know, let's let's the basic go with your crowd
1: pleasing through time. Yeah, I would recommend an ounce and a half of London dry gin, a half an ounce of sweet vermouth, an ounce half an ounce dry vermouth an ounce of orange juice and a dash of orange bitters ice shaken strained and then an express peel of orange on top and there you have it your classic nice express and
0: discard or
1: i lately i've been expressing and discarding but you know in a restaurant setting you
0: might want to leave it Mm -hmm. and what's your preferred glassware for this Cocktail glass. Uh, Nick and
1: Nora would be great Nick of its time, or a mm-hmm. uh, vintage, nice set mm-hmm. like your grandmother's.
0: Uh. <laughs> Actually, I think some of the some of the stuff in my collection might be even older than that. <laughs> God, you know, it's it's wild. Um, talking about pseudoscience, do you do you buy into this? Nick and Nora glass is going to stay slightly colder than a coupe glass. Are you buying into that? No. I tell, you, I tell you when I'm not, not when it's 95 degrees outside on Fifth Avenue. Right.
1: <laughs> I think uh, where you hold the glass is the most important thing. Yeah. Yes, I see. Cup the glass. Mm-hmm. It's over, right? Soon enough. But if you're holding it by the stem,
0: they're fine. And also, this being what I'm trying to do—the mental addition here—it seems like slightly more than three ounces, maybe not. Or, or are you getting four, three? Uh, four. Oh,
1: three and a half. But, yeah. It's a weird build. Yeah, I yeah. tried to make it go four because sours or yeah, tight blossoms. I like to have a four-ounce build mm-hmm. and stirred. I like to have a three-ounce build. Yeah, but this drink was virtually impossible. It's better just to make it a three and a half ounce, mm-hmm. You know.
0: Obviously, there's a glassware component to this question, but what is that to do with like why? How do we land upon the the three ounce and the four ounce bill? Right, like why why did three become the magic number for the for the martinis and the and the manhattans? You, you could know?
1: argue that pre-prohibition cocktails were actually smaller, right? Even smaller than the that. old
0: wine glass measurement right. that we're not right. quite sure. So a
1: lot of drinks maybe came in at two and a half. But in order to somehow meet the middle from the 80s, uh, you know, fishbowl amounts of booze, <laughs> I uh, I think that three-ounce landed as a fair amount of spirit to have in a sensible amount of time. That's a good point. And before going warm yeah, and being able to drink it at its maximum deliciousness.
0: From a sobriety perspective as well, right? right. Like, you know... You want to have at least two cocktails. You know, chances right. are right. You have one. You want to have another. Or n- maybe be able to have a glass of wine as exactly. well. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So segue. Yeah. What about this? Sorry, I'm just getting you off on all topics here today. No, but what and about also this?
1: I I like the idea that uh, sours are like four ounces only because people tend to drink those faster in larger gulps, right? Yeah. So it still buys time for the floor to get another round of drinks out while they're you know
0: smart. Quickly Smart. downing these <laughs> cosmopolitans. Um, I was going to ask you about one final trend here, though. On on that front, this this trend of mini cocktails we're seeing at the moment—is something you come across?
1: Yes, I tried. I tried doing at Peacock Alley actually when we first opened. I did samples. That's how a lot of these variations came about. So yeah. I had, uh, let's say, a dessert one for instance comes to mind. So I would have a classic grasshopper. And then it augmented my version of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I found was people were just ordering the new one. So I said, why even? I, you know, I trained the staff well enough for them to know where the original was, yeah. came from. We had a house recipe book. And if people wanted it, they can have it. Mm-hmm. But nothing inspires sales uh, post theater mm-hmm. like a green. Milky
0: cocktail <laughs> with uh, chocolate shavings on top. Oh my god! I'll have one of those. What a drink! We just had a we just had our uh, pear staff party recently, our holiday party recently, and finished the the night with a round of mini grasshoppers. And it's just right. It's a great way to top yourself. Yes,
1: that's a good one. Mm-hmm. But they are labor intensive. If your bar is very busy, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I guess there's batching you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of think. But then you move into are you overindulging? Guess. Very, guess, yeah. very quickly, yeah. right? So even if you gave two ounce pours, you want to give a fair shake, they are paying for them, mm-hmm. even priced accordingly. You'd yeah. still have to give uh, at least six ounces, right?
0: It's an interesting concept to talk about, yeah.
1: And then are they staying cold enough Yeah. as well, you know?
0: Yeah it's not one for me, and, and again, the only other thing, my, my, you know, the wheels are going up here, the cogs are turning, I'm thinking, well, you know, we've seen with, with wine and craft beer in recent years where people have had to say, hey, have a little pour of this to say maybe you might like this more than your macro lager, right? right? This is a different type of beer. So the mini cocktail, maybe it works from a point of view of like, well, you can't make someone a sample of a cocktail. Right. They either well, like it or they don't.
1: I do like the idea if you have a House cocktail like we had the peacock at Peacock Alley and you greeted them or you gave it to them gratis. Oh nice. As a welcome gift or an amuse to the bar mm-hmm. kind of thing. That works. I right? like that. That's a nice Two idea. Two ounces cold, here you go. Get the ball rolling. Everyone likes something on the house. <laughs> you feel like you're winning.
0: You yes. feel like you got one over already. <laughs> All right, then, Frank, any final thoughts on the Bronx before we move into the next section of the show?
1: Uh, no, try them, folks. Try them. That's my...
0: Uh... Try them. Don't be afraid. And, hey, definitely better than a moose at brunch, right?
1: Absolutely. Use
0: orange juice. Yes.
1: <laughs> try them on the rocks, too.
0: Yeah? Nice. All right, then, let's hit you. Let's hit you with the five weekly questions to finish the show here. Beginning okay. with number one. Hit me. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Now, that could be in a professional setting or that can be at home. Up to you.
1: Either or, it's probably gin and whiskey mm-hmm. of some kind. You know, I think there are varied enough flavor profiles within those two categories for you to really mm-hmm. expand and... uh turn people on to new things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Years ago, I would probably not include agave, but today you would have that as well, right? Mm -hmm. So,
0: I mean... Agave, yeah. yeah. If you you don't have that, you're leaving money on the table these days, right?
1: No, I mean a varied... Oh, oh, the the vast... You you can have more, right? Years ago, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. But now, for sure, I mean, I would definitely include a
0: large... On the gin front, what's the last new... This is part B of the question here. <laughs> it's not on the prep list. What's the last new or interesting gin you had that it could either be a London Dry, but I mean, London Dry is pretty well covered. But what's the last one you had that you're like, all right, this is this is really cool. This is something different that I haven't tried before, but still also feels like gin. You know what I mean? Some of these new gins, they don't really feel like gin.
1: I had, they sent the uh, folks at Blue Coat Mm-hmm. And the barrel-aged gin mm-hmm. that I thought was very interesting. And uh, g- we're great in the Bronx, right? Because then that adds the spine, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, also a Martinez as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, barrel-aged gin came a long way. We used to have to do it ourselves. I used to buy barrels from uh, upstate at Tuttletown mm-hmm. and fill it with uh, Jeez. New York distilling gin, yeah. f- the full barrel. And aged them ourselves, buy a pallet of gin and put them back in the bottle and that's how we made the house martinez. That's crazy. But now there's brands that do it. So mm-hmm.
0: that, that that blue coat there, their their yeah. standard gin. I like that. I, I, I um made a recent batch of martinis with that for the uh For the Super Bowl, sadly, that didn't go down so well for the... (laughs) I thought I was back in Philly there with that one, but uh, it's the second time in two weeks that I've just given a dig to the (laughs) the Eagles.
1: (laughs) I thought the Philly uh, Eagles were going to
0: win. I I thought it was a good game. It was a good Super Bowl, right, by the way? Not that this is a sports podcast, but like... Action to the end. It was. It was good. Uh, All right, then, question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: Uh, without thinking too much, I'll let you know what came to my mind, which is hospitality. I think uh, all this aside, and it's great to know the history of cocktails, and it's great to know what you're serving in your particular establishment. It's also better to be hospitable and have an eye on what's going on and taking care of the guests, because at the end of the day, that's why we're there, right? Yeah. And I hear this, often enough, but I don't think it could be said enough because I see it when I go out. Why not? Uh, also it's nice to have friends come visit your bar, but they're not your main reason for being there. I see that a lot going on, a little clubbiness that could be down ticked a little bit.
0: I hear you. Uh, I've seen it. Right. Yeah. Uh,
1: In establishments where guests are paying. uh, So I think that's important. And, uh, Who said that the uh, drinks are free, people pay for the hospitality?
0: Uh, I like that line a lot. I like it too. Yes. And especially, you know, we all have that that perspective from the pandemic recently, right? right? I mean, a lot of people learned to make cocktails during that time, but either way, like, we could drink during the pandemic. But the thing, we realized what we missed if we didn't beforehand. Right, the
1: crowd being about, being a service properly.
0: Having someone take care of right. you after, right? A, a long, long day. day at work, nothing better. Right. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: I guess that uh, came to mind. Like I was told, I don't know if it was Gary Regan or somebody said, uh, the drinks are free, people pay for the hospitality. I always keep that in mind. And uh you know, if the the old the people out there will laugh, time to lean, time to, time time to, to clean. clean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, the classics. Oh, it is a classic and you know what? I used to hate it when I worked in kitchens and that, you know. One of those got thrown your way, you were like you you were guilty of it and it was like yeah. I just heard a million eye rolls out there. <laughs> it's true, though. You know, it might be cliched, but it's, it's a cliche for a reason. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be?
1: The nearest one.
0: <laughs> really.
1: I, don't, I think what I would order would be based on what the nearest bar
0: had. Okay.
1: Right. If it okay. was lucky enough to be in a fine establishment, I'd order something a little wilder. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, the last one would be the nearest one.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that you then answering the next question here what? for me as well too? No, 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 no. Okay, I was going to say because uh, the last question here we have is you if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last what would you order or make?
1: Well, that I would just direct a uh, five-to-one martini.
0: Five-to-one? Sure. Six-to-one
1: nice. even, depending on if it was my last one or
0: not. Or l- <laughs> well, second-to-last one. Frank, you're making me feel good here because I, I sometimes, the way I make a martini at home and the way I ask bartenders, this this trend of 50-50s or wet or martinis makes me feel like, guys, this is just how I take it. I don't right. want to feel like I'm a, you know. A f-
1: Lush. Yeah. But that's but how I like it. I'll say this. I feel like the 50-50 is an original, you know, rendition yeah. of a martini, and that's fine. But uh, I feel like I grew up on a drier version, yeah. and that's what I need to fill that hole, fill that cavity, when I want a martini. Yeah. If I wanted something lighter, I would order something lighter. Yeah. To me, the the talk about not being fish nor fowl. I think the 50-50 martini is uh, neither fish nor fowl. Mm-hmm. Like the better the vermouth, you'd want some kind of vermouth on the rocks, right? Yeah. The better the gin, give me more gin. I'm not t- getting it all with the vermouth. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, you can have a 50-50 martini. Yeah. I think it's essential in a 50-50 martini to have bitters of some yeah. kind because that has no spine. mm
0: mm-hmm. Maybe pick up yourself a bottle of De Groff's before that goes out. We're not sure whether Dale's is, Dale's is hanging on there. And we did have him on there for that one. So check that one out, listener, if you haven't heard that. But yeah, Dale De Groff's bitters. If you didn't hear it there, stock up while you can. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, Frank. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us on the show. Any final thoughts just yourself?
1: Uh, no, this was great. And uh, if we could think of something cool to do again,
0: I'm down. Always. All right. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout-out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Sharino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. Vinepair is excited to partner with Mount Gay Rum for its A Taste of Home cocktail competition. Inspired by Mount Gay's centuries-long relationship with Barbados, the competition asked bartenders to craft a cocktail that represents what home means to them using sustainable local ingredients. Six finalists will earn the incredible opportunity to visit Barbados and compete for the national title. Head to the link in today's show description for all the rules and guidelines and be sure to submit your recipe by midnight on Wednesday, March 29th.